Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Barclay. People in China have no qualms about wearing clothes which seem to promote the United States. Hats bearing logos of US sports teams are in fashion in Shanghai. And down in southern China, on the tropical resort of Hainan Island, tourists love to pose in the latest Californian-style surfwear. Despite these cultural overlaps, at a national level, many countries feel that they're being pressed to make a choice between China and America. Often, the dilemma stems from a fear of being dominated by a great power or being left to fend for oneself in the face of aggression. Today on the podcast, we're going to ask if countries really do have to pick a side or if they can remain neutral. I'm joined by a friend who's also a fellow teacher on a course for the Executive Education Programme of The Economist, John Andrews. John is a veteran economist journalist. He's the author of the book, The World in Conflict, Understanding the World's Trouble Spots, which has just been updated. John, welcome to China in Context. Thank you very much, Duncan. It's great to be here. So this question of whether to pick a side has become especially pressing since the invasion of Ukraine. It's prompted some European countries to apply for NATO membership. And at the same time, China's reaffirmed its so-called ironclad relationship with Russia. Can you tell us how this has changed the way other countries view great power rivalry? Well, I think it's worth bearing in mind that actually this idea of a choice predates by quite a long way the invasion of Ukraine. And it essentially means that uh, trade with China has increased, trade with America has decreased. And therefore, which side, if, if, uh, if things came to a crunch, would trading partners have to choose? I think that's a rather simplistic way of looking at it. But it is worth bearing in mind that China is much more aggressive in its diplomacy than it has been. And that's because of Xi Jinping. And also that the balances have changed. If you go back 20 years, then uh, America really was the number one trading partner for most countries. Now it's a complete reverse. Almost all countries, three quarters of the countries in the world now name China as more uh, of of a trading dependency than America. Well, I can see why many nations would want to continue to trade with China, but what other factors come into the equation on picking a side? Well, one of the factors to bear in mind is alliances. I mean, America has plenty of alliances. I mean, not just NATO, but it has security treaties with Japan, with South Korea, uh, Philippines. It has these embedded security pacts, if you like. Sometimes they're formal alliances, sometimes a little less, but they exist. China really has only a couple of real allies at the moment. One, obviously, is North Korea. A second is Myanmar, which in economic terms is a pygmy. And of late, of course, there's this new relationship with Putin's Russia. Nonetheless, China has done precious little really to support Russia. I think the way you've described the American approach is interesting because the phrase that you often hear from Joe Biden and indeed the US State Department is America's desire to maintain its relationships with allies, friends, and like-minded countries. That's a pretty broad category, isn't it? Yeah, it's basically the idea that we have liberal-minded democracies and we have other countries that aren't. Now, the trouble is that this particular sort of definition 
is incredibly wobbly. I mean, for example, it's hard to think of Saudi Arabia as being a liberal-minded democracy. And yet Saudi Arabia is definitely an ally of the United States. You can look at various countries around the world and in the sense um, where they side on the, the Sino-US split uh, depends upon a whole host of factors, many of which are simply historical. Well, you mentioned Saudi Arabia there. Joe Biden went to Riyadh in the spring of 2022. Bit of a controversial visit, actually, because a lot of Americans criticized him because of Saudi Arabia's human rights record. Xi Jinping is rumored to be going to Saudi Arabia on a visit quite soon. So it seems as though Saudi Arabia is one of those countries that's trying to play both sides. I think that's absolutely right. Saudi Arabia is trying to play both sides. It was very, very annoyed by Joe Biden's uh, stance before he was elected on the, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, but I think when, if, if you go right to the base, it, Saudi Arabia needs the United States more than the other way around. And it needs the United States more than it needs China. Now, it is the biggest uh, exporter of oil to China. So that relationship will always continue. But in terms of confronting Iran, for example, then I think what matters is the relationship with other countries in the Middle East and in particular with the United States. Looking at the Far East, let's talk a little bit about Singapore. Its Prime Minister, Li Hsien-Lung, has expressed concern about the rivalry between China and the United States. He said it's making it almost impossible to deal with global issues such as climate change, pandemics and nuclear proliferation. Actually, I think, uh, you know, Prime Minister Lee is voicing something that we hear at a lot of international meetings, that China and the United States are standing in the way of a proper dialogue about these important issues. What do you make of that analysis? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I have a lot of respect for Lee Xianlong, uh, B.G. Lee, as I used to call him the days when I knew him in Singapore. I mean, he's a very smart guy, as, of course, was his father. And I think they position Singapore extremely cleverly in the geopolitical uh, scheme of things. And I, they've always been in Singapore extraordinarily perceptive and pragmatically analytical about their situation in the world. And they know very well that to make a choice between the US and China is something that, which would be very, very difficult for them. If you take the greatest issue really confronting humanity, which is climate change, you cannot possibly um, try to mitigate the impact of climate change without some sort of collaboration between the United States and China. And so, you know, B.J. Lee Xinlong is absolutely right. And of course, his voice is not alone. Um, I think there are plenty of voices around the world that will say exactly the same thing. I think, by the way, Duncan, one of the tragedies of the Ukraine war is that that, so that very big issue of climate change is actually being shoved to one side for a moment. Well, of course, there's a pressing need for international discussion about uh, climate change, John. But, you know, I noticed that after Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the US House of Representatives, went to Taiwan, the Chinese said that they would break off discussions with the United States on climate change collaboration. Well, I think, you know, we have gesture politics on both sides. I think Nancy Pelosi's visit was 
unnecessary, deliberately provocative, and it was just a politics. And of course, it's been followed up by other congressional visits. Um, I think the reaction by China was you know, absolutely predictable uh, as well. But again, gesture politics. I mean, the sensible people on both sides of the Pacific, whether they're in Beijing or in Washington, they know very well that there has to be a dialogue on this. Now, if you look at China itself, some of the, the climate change-induced catastrophes that we have been seeing in recent months uh, will certainly concentrate the minds in, um, in Beijing and will, I think, mean that there has to be some sort of movement on, on the environment. Okay, so America's got warships, it's got uh, fighter planes, it's got nuclear weapons. But what about the other things that America has to offer? Innovation in business, a vibrant economy, rock music, sport. I mean, I mentioned surfing earlier on. They're all alluring, aren't they? Does it all boil down to security and defence, or are there other reasons why people might pick America as a side? Because they're attracted to its culture, for example. Duncan, you make an incredibly good point. Soft power is very, very important, and America is one of the world's leaders in soft power. Uh, its culture, its language, uh, its rock music, its fashions, etc. And China rather belatedly is trying to catch up with uh, CGTN and you know, various 24-hour um, rolling news cable TVs, but it's not quite, it can never really compete. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at the, the rival attractions, people want to go to America, they don't want to go to China. I'm talking, you know, from Africa or wherever. I mean, you know, if you just look at where people are voting with their feet. And so that actually is, is very important. So the soft power really does count. Um, bear in mind also that I think under Xi Jinping, um, what had looked as if it was going to be an irresistible rise in Chinese tech and Chinese um, capitalism has basically halted. In the, the, if you look at the market capitalizations, uh, they are dominated by American businesses, not by Chinese. I've never really liked that phrase, soft power, John. I've always felt it was a bit tautologous, a bit like a soft biscuit or a soft hammer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know what you mean, but on the other hand, uh, if you think of The Economist or if you think of the BBC, uh, their major attraction is actually that they provide things that rivals don't. What they're providing is an element of soft power. I mean, you may not like the phrase, but Joseph Nye was the guy who, who invented it some, I guess, 40, 50 years ago now. And it is actually terribly influential. I mentioned that we're both teaching international students on a course about politics. That's something that I'm very much enjoying, actually. Um, many of our students come from countries with governments which have either sided with China or America. But I'm hearing some of the students saying that individually they've got misgivings about this. In fact, they feel a bit trapped because they don't want to be hostile to people from either country, but they feel that they've been caught up in a rather unpleasant dispute, which they'd rather step away from. They'd like to take a more neutral position. Yeah, I, I sympathize with them, but I, I wonder, Duncan, when you say that they've, they come from countries that have sided with China, I mean, which countries are they? I mean, I find it hard to think of countries that 
in a sense have genuinely sided with China, as opposed to having to be uh, ambivalent and ambiguous about the attitude to both powers. Well, that's a good point, actually, because China's friends are a pretty, pretty short list of countries, yeah. isn't it? Laos, Cambodia, Myanmar, Russia, but even that's got a bit of a question mark after yeah. it. And also, I know, I know you don't like the phrase soft power, but when students say they don't want to have to make that choice, basically, they're attracted by the soft power of the United States and of the Western system in general. Let me put the final question to you, John. Do you think it is possible for countries to stay neutral? I think it's possible, but it depends upon the pressures. If you go back you know, 50, 60 years, a bit longer, in fact, you had the, the non-aligned movement. And that was the idea of trying not to be picking a side in the great cultural and geopolitical conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union. It sort of worked for many countries, but not for all. Where it didn't work, when it was actually changed by sides were chosen basically by economic reasons. I mean, for example, you know, Egypt would like to have been non-aligned, but in the days uh, before Sadat, it chose Soviet Union because of weapons. Uh, then it switched to the United States. Um, Indonesia. Um, was a founding member of the non-aligned movement and wanted to stay aloof from the fray. And I think more or less managed to do that, helped, of course, by being a member of OPEC. Once you have your own economic weapon, then you have the ability to defend yourself against the pressures of other countries. Well, thank you, John, for giving us a global overview and some interesting historical examples, too. That was John Andrews, author of The World in Conflict, Understanding the World's Trouble Spots, published by Profile Books. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, and you can find out more about our activities on our website, soas.ac.uk. But until next time, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.